0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone for our last class, and we're always a little rushed at the end of the nights. We have our small group, so I just want to thank all the people who have volunteered to be the program hosts for the Buddhist Studies, and all the people who've been taking care of the audio these weeks. There are many, many people now who do the Buddhist Studies course around the country, I think even some from overseas, and they are totally dependent, of course, on the recordings. And then some of you who are traveling and can't be here can also listen at home. And Judy for doing the Donna Talk last week. And uh, maybe also just to remind everyone that uh, quite naturally, we'll need to do dependent co-arising or co- uh, um, co-dependent arising, it's some, sometimes called. What's well, it a, a number of different ways, but I like the co-arising um, part or co-dependent arising is how I like to think of it. But anyway, the, um, that will be the winter course and begins the second Monday in January. And uh, I don't know if you can sign up now. Gabe Keller-Flores, our office manager, is arriving right now, or almost right now, at IMS for a four-week retreat with Ajahn Sushito. He's one of the lucky ones who got in, so we wish him well. But anyway, it will be up sometime in December, if it's not up now, for you to register for that. And it's the natural continuation of karma. And it's a little bit about what we're talking about tonight before we break into small groups. Because it's really addressing that question about, you know, hopefully we've been paying attention and we really see the reality of karma. Intention matters, you know, and we see it so clearly. If if I let my mind spin in a particular way, the karma is right there—the fruit of that action, of that intentional action—to worry, or to fantasize, or to. Have a revenge fantasy or whatever it might be, we, we feel the tension that's been laid down in the body and the mind. And then we might, it's more subtle, but we might notice also that the mind is more in the tendency to do that same kind of thinking again because it's done it before. It becomes the inclination of the mind and if that inclination is watered, followed through, then it becomes the habit If that habit is continually acted out, then it becomes the character. It's very hard to change. And for those of us getting older now, we see some habits that have been practiced for decades, and now we might have enough space, perspective, to realize that's not a helpful pattern. But it takes real dedication to keep seeing it and to keep wearing it down, wearing down the causes to continue in that way, not being fooled, confused by the momentum to do that habit again, whatever it is. And so it's so much easier not to set the habit in motion to begin with than to somehow undermine it once it's gotten ossified, you know, as character, personality. So another way, so you know, I'm going to talk about karma in terms of freedom. And uh, I don't know if Jan is here tonight, but she sent me an email um, about a question she heard someone ask Joseph. Because there's any number of these questions or ways of asking the same question about, you know, read it from Ajahn Sumedho. Maybe some of you read that chapter that think Rick um, scanned for us. And at the end of that chapter on karma and rebirth, somebody asks Ajahn Sumedho, this Western Buddhist monk, if there's no self or soul in the Buddhist way of seeing things, who or what is getting reborn? Who or what gets the result of good or bad deeds? Right? We talked a little bit about this last week, and then he had this great answer, I think, well, you see, in the ultimate sense, there's nobody to get reborn and nobody to get results. So like in one of the commentarial texts that it's quite well known, The Path of Purification, Buddhagosa says something like, suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. Doing is, doing happens, but no doer can be found. So Ajahn Sameda goes on, what gets reborn are desires repeating themselves out of ignorance. It's not just desire, because desire is just a neutral force in the universe. You know, the desire to move away from something too hot. The desire to eat. There are a lot of, you know, the whole world of life operates with Desire. Even plants, you know, gravitating towards the sun, you know, that's just a more simple version of desire. It's a natural process, desire. But desire and ignorance, a mind that is capable of misunderstanding, constructing a story about desire, then we start having what we call suffering. Right? It's just desires repeating themselves out of ignorance. Out of ignorance, these desires are created and they give the impression of somebody who has problems, somebody who is unhappy or depressed. Right? So when we identify, when the mind identifies with desire, imagines that imagines that desire is more than just desire. I want that. I don't want that then we have suffering. So he writes, because of these desires, it seems as if life should be something other than what it is. Doesn't it seem that way? (laughs) Especially, you know, maybe because of media, maybe the world was always messy, but it seems really messy. And it seems like it shouldn't be messy. right? People shouldn't be killed because of their identities, like at the synagogue, or all the other killings that have been happening. And it's just, you know, this has been going on forever, and in other places around the globe. It's amazing how uh, obvious and terrible the injustice is, shocking, when we open our eyes, when we listen. So we think that life should be something other than what it is. The rebirth process is not anybody's. It's just the process of causal conditions. With mindfulness, you realize that the result of birth and past action actions happen this way. And if you keep mindful of the fact, you don't create anybody to get born again. You don't create the illusion of anyone who is receiving anything, becoming anything, or being punished for anything. It's merely that the present moment is the result of past action. If we are not ignorant, we don't suffer from present conditions that we are experiencing. This is very hard to understand from the personal view. So popular So popular Buddhism teaches simply, if you do good, you receive good. If you do bad, you receive bad. Therefore, you should do good and not do bad. This is a conventional way of talking. But as one continues to practice, the understanding of Dhamma increases, and one is more aware of the true nature of things. Then the idea of receiving good or receiving bad no longer makes sense. At that stage, there's no longer a question of doing good or doing bad. One acts on opportunities to do good, but the motivation is not based on an idea that anybody's going to receive <coughs> anything for it. And one has no inclination to do bad things, because unskillful only has an attractive quality when there is the basis, the basic delusion of self. When that when that self-delusion is relinquished, then there's no problems left. There's the doing of good, but it's done because that's what's right, what's appropriate. It's, done, it's not done for personal gain or benefit. So compassion becomes the activity of nature, not the activity of somebody trying to be compassionate. And unskillful actions don't arise in a mind that understands. Because by definition, they come out of that frame of greed, or come out of the frame of anger. right? So if that frame, if the mind isn't constructing that frame, that self-centered frame, then how does one act out unskillfully? Now this is, I mean, I, if it doesn't seem provocative what I just read, you know, maybe you haven't listened, <laughs> because it is provocative. It's very provocative, because we think of this, our life, from a very personal view. So there, there very much is this world of cause and effect, and we're right in the middle of it, and we're trying to be skillful, and we're seeing ourselves and others sometimes being skillful and sometimes really being unskillful in terms of how they're relating And so as we pay more attention, we develop more mindfulness, we begin to recognize what's skillful and unskillful. In more and more places in our life, we can navigate without setting emotion, without planting seeds that will come back to bite us, come back to bite other people. We move through life not leaving as much of a painful trace for ourselves and for others. Doesn't that seem true? And we see some people moving through life, leaving a really big trace, setting emotion a lot of suffering. That seems so obvious and with you know, some examples that might come to mind of people who lie or people who steal or take things unjust, you know, think, take things that aren't theirs, break the precepts, cause, you know, abuse, take advantage of the, their power. And it seems, you know, when we, like, imagine what it would be like to be that mind, I don't know, would any of us choose to be a really unskillful person? Even if, on some grosser level, they're sort of getting stuff from their unskillful action. Even if it seems that they're oblivious. Would we want to be that oblivious person? Anybody want to be an oblivious, unskillful person? people with a balanced mind with more clarity cuz we could i mean we could become an evil person and harm and you know take advantage of it's like you know maybe we don't have enough power to really abuse other people but we could abuse insects and pets and you know but we you know we don't want to do that we know that's not what we want to do we it would feel lousy to do that if we're sensitive to be the one who did kick the cat or whatever. You know, oh I mean it's it's kind of almost repulsive to say it out loud. Right? That that sort of thing, like, oh yeah, oh I wouldn't want to do that. So this is our normal ordinary way of becoming a moral being, where we realize there are skillful and unskillful ways of being, ways of thinking, ways of speaking, ways of acting, and it matters. And we really study, and as we become a better student, a more refined, careful, sensitive student of what's skillful and unskillful, it starts to come online like not just what intentions are skillful or unskillful, but it starts to come online, well, what's the skillful way to relate to intention. So initially we're just able, if we're lucky, to know intentions matter, what intentions are skillful, kindness, what intentions are unskillful, hate. Right but once we get sort of pretty good at operating in that world and avoiding the hate and living more and more with kindness generosity non-harming right these are the three wholesome intentions the buddha talks about and the unwholesome ones are non-greed i'm sorry greed and non-kindness hate and harming justifying harm so when we're operating with the skillful have abandoned, then it just quite naturally occurs to the mind that has become very refined, very sensitive to karma, to the effects, cause and effect. How, like, what is the skillful way to relate to doing, to being the doer, to intention itself? And that's what I was pointing to at the last half of the guided meditation tonight. When we're, we can be aware of the intention to swallow, the intention to move the body, the intention to be a good meditator, the intention to want to solve this problem, and then I'll get back to my meditation, or the intention to want to wonder about something, fantasize about something. It's, uh, it matters how we view or understand intention. If we think intentions are my responsibility, there's karmic fruit to that understanding of intention. And that intention is what we basically, I mean, that understanding is basically what we have, because there's no learning to be skillful in avoiding unskillfulness, unless we think intentions are mine, right? So to become a moral being, we first realize, I'm responsible for these intentions. And, we really, and that motivates us to pay attention to intention, right, and to notice the difference between skillful and unskillful intentions, and all the ways to prevent and abandon the unskillful intentions, and all the ways to cultivate and maintain the skillful intentions. That's how the Buddha defines effort, by the way. Skillful effort is abandoning and preventing the unskillful intentions from dominating the mind, cultivating and maintaining skillful, wholesome intentions in the mind. right? That's called being a wholesome human being, moral being. But the Buddha points to not so much being liberated or free from karma, but more, maybe say, free from being pushed around by cause and effect. I think I mentioned this earlier in the course, and it's a really potent teaching that uh, karma is the given. Like when we open, use awareness to open to Dhamma the way it is, what we really see is conditionality, cause and effect. It's a lawful universe. Whether we're looking within our own mind or looking in sort of a more global or within a community People relating to each other, we really see the lawfulness of cause and effect. This sets in motion that these things are interrelated. It's complex. That's why we have. That's why we're going in the winter to this co-dependent arising, or this dependent co-arising. It's not just a linear conditionality, right? It's it's more complex than that. It's so complex, the Buddha said if you try to understand it, you know, you go crazy. You can't understand it. You can you can understand that it's lawful, that it's conditional, but you can't read it. But we don't have to read it. We just need to understand that it's impersonal. And that's the thing that we get to. We see the lawfulness of karma. That never changes. That insight into conditionality lawfulness, cause and effect. That doesn't change with insight. What changes is, to what or to who does this lawfulness refer back to? Who's being pushed around? Who's being affected? What's being affected by the conditional nature of the universe? There is cause and effect. There is doing doing has consequences, doing sets stuff in motion, but to whom does it refer? And this is really the Buddhist teachings on freedom. It's what is the skillful way to relate to the world of karma. So in one of the suttas, the Buddha talks about dark karma with dark results. So action, remember, the best translation for karma Is action or action with intention. So unskillful karma, here it's translated as dark karma, has dark results. Right? And we learned about, you know, the unskillful actions and attitudes of the mind, right? Killing or harming, stealing, sexual misconduct, right? And then the four kinds of unskillful speech, slander, harsh speech, idle speech, and false speech, and then the attitude of greed, the attitude of ill will, fixed views, you know, holding to views. So these are the, you know, the ten unwholesome actions that have dark results. And then there's karma with bright, bright karma with bright results, right? acting with kindness, acting with generosity, letting go, acting with this commitment to not harm, compassion, to want to alleviate pain and suffering, that it actually leads to the heart, not just out there, other people benefit from our compassion or our kindness, but our heart immediately is affected. That's really the only way you know whether you're being kind or compassionate or generous is what is the effect in the heart and mind? Because it's pretty easy to fool ourselves. We do it all the time. You know, We tell ourselves we're being generous, but we're just manipulating the situation to get something. And if we're really sensitive, we'll notice, oh yeah, I feel tight. I don't feel light. This is a way, whatever I just did, whatever that action, karma was, the karmic fruit, the result of that karmic action or that uh, intentional action, the fruit is this whatever got left laid down in the heart, you know, what I'm feeling right now, and whatever is reverberating like in the relationships that I have with the people that were affected by my actions. So there's. Dark karma, there's bright karma, there's mixed karma. It's both somewhat wholesome, somewhat unwholesome. And then there's this fourth category that I wanted to read tonight. The Buddha asks in this discourse, and what is the karma, kama, intentional action, that is neither dark nor bright, with neither dark nor bright result, leading to the ending of karma, ending of karma, the intention right there to abandon karma that is dark and with dark result, this karma that is bright and with bright result, this karma that is dark and bright with dark and bright result. Right? So karma that is, uh, that is neither dark nor bright with neither dark nor bright result leading to the ending of karma is to abandon Karma, to abandon the attachment or identification with intention. You hear this sometimes um, in the Buddha, but also people talking about the Buddhist teaching about like in terms of the awakening process, the mind understanding something about intention, right? Where there's no confusion. Like, what is the mind that is not confused by intention? What's that experience? And we get some flavor of this, like when there's a lot of peace and stillness in the mind. You know, the mind's not interested in any of the grosser intentions. If you've fallen into or opened up to some of these states, it's like there may be an intention to move, but the mind's not confused by that intention. Or an intention like, oh, I want to tell somebody about this nice peaceful state. But that it's like that intention is not impactful in the mind. It doesn't have any bite. So this is like one way to understand deeper insight is the mind's relationship to intention changes. But it isn't that the mind, it isn't that level of the mind that's trying to be skillful. Like, oh, being skillful means not being confused by intention. It's really a shift in view or a shift in understanding about what intention is. The mind is seeing something about intention. Basically, you know, with language we say that it's nature, not self. It's not me. It's just what it is, but it isn't doesn't refer back or doesn't, it isn't more than what intention is when it's just seen in the mind. And that example I gave, you know, it's that uh, from the Agutara Nakaya, the simile of the salt. Now suppose a person throws a lump of salt into a small cup of water. What do you think, practitioners, with that small quality Quantity of water in the cup becomes salty and undrinkable because of the lump of salt? Sure would, sir. And why so? The water in the cup is so little that the lump of salt can make it salty and undrinkable. And then the Buddha says, but suppose, practitioners, the lump of salt is thrown into the river, right? Would it make the river Ganges salty and undrinkable? Certainly not, sir. And why not? Great is the mass of the water in the river. It would not become salty and undrinkable by a lump of salt. And then the Buddha goes on and gives another simile. Like, if a very wealthy person had to pay a fine, no big deal. If an impoverished person has to pay a fine, big deal. Right? I mean, this is one of the things about medical crises. People who don't have good insurance or whatever... You know, there are a lot of people who are in desperate straits because they got sick, and they could never pay off the medical bill, and one thing leads to another. So this is just a simile for the kind of space of wisdom. And we, and like I said, we get a little sense of this liberation a little bit of a sense of immunity from karma just with wholesome, expanded states, whether it's just a state of deeper samadhi, calm, or another more accessible, even more accessible, because not everyone drops into deep states of concentration in their meditation practice, that most of us, at least some of the time, have relatively pure states of love, kindness, friendliness, generosity, were that those wholesome qualities are very dominant, so dominant that ill will, stinginess, just can't be anywhere in that heart or mind in those mind moments, right? right? Haven't we had those very real, authentic, non-contrived experiences of love? I hope so. Ideally, we'd be having them you know, relatively regularly. (laughs) And had sort of an unusual one time in a life event. Where the heart just opens. Now you can notice at that time that whatever karmic fruits are coming your way and remember all the karmic fruits coming your way aren't things you set in motion. So if you're there and a tsunami is coming You could tell yourself a story, you know, I did something in my past life, so now I'm gonna be drowned by the tsunami, or you know, I did something to that person in the previous life and now they're a real irritant in my life. But as we talked, I think last week, there are many causes for why things are the way they are. Not all of them, like what I done what seeds I've planted. And we'll get to this before we break into groups. I'll go there next. But just to finish this example, right? so that with love as a predominant quality in the mind, then if I stub my toe or if somebody is being a jerk to me, that particular event doesn't push me around as much when I'm in a more generous Loving state, but if I'm already tight, if I'm already angry, if I'm already at the last straw, then somebody just looks at me funny. You know, it can really push me over the edge, right? So, this is this gives us a sense of the power of insight to create a mind that isn't touched. By karma, but it doesn't mean there isn't cause and effect, and that's why it's so good to read the stories of the early nuns and monks because they had a lot of bad things happen to them, even when they were fully awake. Supposedly, you know, I don't know if I mentioned in this course, but Moggallana, one of the Buddhist chief disciples, you know, was murdered at the end of his life by a bunch of thugs. Yeah, really horrendous death, evidently, and you know. A Agulimala, who was a serial killer, who then became a monk and eventually fully awake, but kept getting mistreated, even though he was a arhat, fully awake, wise human being, loving human being. But because people recognized him, I mean, I don't know, the legend is that he killed 1,000 people, or 999 people. So anyway, a lot of people. And those lot of people had a lot of relatives, so people would recognize him you know, and throw things at him, and they didn't care he was in the Buddhist garb, a student of the Buddha. So, you know, he was mistreated, and the Buddha just said, well, you know, you have to bear that, you don't need, you know, you don't have to make it a problem. And then he 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 made these sort of generous resolves, you know, just the kind of, uh, nowadays in Buddhist culture, I forget how he did it exactly, but he basically um, shared the merit of his own practice and his awakening uh, for pregnant women, giving about to give birth and giving birth. And so he's somebody sort of the patron saint, like the by the power of his awakening, may women going through the birthing process be taken care of, right? Just like we sometimes at the end of doing something. Some generous act might say, I don't know how this works. And this is a little bit sort of folk Buddhist stuff, right? Uh, but may the goodness of what I've done, like now that we're finishing the course, may the goodness of having participated in this course, may it be offered to my parents, or may it be offered to the people suffering race, you know, racism or support, you know? So, And the thing is that thought... Is good karma, right? We can feel it. It's like it's nice to give away the goodness in our life or whatever blessings we have in our life. To wish that they that goodness be shared with others. We don't know whether it's actually gonna affect others. Maybe, maybe not. It's a nice thought, right? But I do know directly the effect of my heart, that willingness to share the goodness in my life. So anyway, that's just an aside about a gulimala. Let's see. There was one more point I wanted to make, and this really relates to the uh, small groups you might have tonight, which is really about this. You know, so if we, if we're opening to this idea that karma is, but it doesn't ultimately belong to anybody, seeds are being planted all the time, right? Good seeds, bad seeds, mixed seeds, seeds of freedom—right? These four kinds of seeds being laid down, being planted all the time, but they ultimately don't refer back. So, why bother? You know, because you want to go right to that. So there's, there's something about. Because, like with rebirth, it's sort of—it's such a mystery. It's. So one way I've been thinking about it, and Andy Olenski and others talk about it this way, it's like something is being set in motion and it's a beautiful act of compassion to care about the seeds we're planting, even if I even if we have enough wisdom to know that I am never personally going to receive the fruit of that karma but some sensitive being will receive the fruit of whatever I set in motion. Now the question isn't whether that's true. The question is, is it skillful to think that whenever we're being mean-spirited, whenever we're being greedy, whenever we're being tight, that somebody is going to experience the burden of what the mind just set in motion. There's a. I'll end it here. Um, some of you might have heard there was a great set of interviews uh, with Bill Moyers and Houston Smith. Maybe some of you know Houston Smith. He was a great uh, professor of religious studies, taught at uh, Washington University in St. Louis for a while, and then I think at MIT. And toward the end of his life, uh, Bill Moyers interviewed him, and so you could probably find that on YouTube. I'm guessing it was a while back. And he was really into trying out all the religions he studied, including you know meditation, Hinduism, yoga, Buddhism. He went to Japan and practiced at a Zen temple. And at the end of the re- the sushi, the retreat, he asked his Zen teacher, you know, to summarize the practice. And he had this great line, and and it really like a beautiful way to live with karma. This circle of generosity of giving and receiving, compassion. So his answer, like what is you know what's the point of Buddhism? is he said, infinite uh, infinite gratitude for all things past, infinite service for all things present, infinite responsibility for all things future. So it's really about this generosity. And again, you know, compassion's generosity. We feel how impactful it is to live that way. And we also feel how impactful it is to live in a stingy way. That somehow what I do doesn't matter. Somehow I can get away with being stingy, being self-absorbed. Concerned only with my self dramas. Now, this infinite compassion, compassionate action, it doesn't neglect us. It's not like excluding. That's also neurotic to somehow not think that we don't deserve kindness and care. So, you know, one of the things to chat about in the small groups tonight in your two or three minutes is just to talk about how at times the teachings on karma have felt very heavy and oppressive and not helpful. And the other thing is to share your own intuition how really embracing the teachings on karma and getting really more and more interested in cause and effect and how to so that even how the mind is relating is seen as a impactful event really leads to freedom because this is where we're going in the winter how can suffering and how can freedom be suffering which seems so real to us exist when there's not a somebody who's suffering and not a somebody who's free that's really the teachings of dependent co-arising it's like how does suffering arise without a being because it seems so real to me, and how does freedom, which also initially seems really impactful, how does freedom arise when there's nobody to whom freedom lands? How how does that happen? So the Buddhist teach on dependent co-arising is talking about suffering and freedom as a natural process. So it's really his teaching on Wherever you are in that spectrum, a sufferer or experiencing a lot of freedom, how you can observe that directly as a natural process. How it makes sense that that experience of being someone who's suffering is just this natural process. and What gives that natural process its coherence or its integrity? Because it looks like it's me who's suffering but that can be described as a natural process. And that's the teachings we'll go to in the winter. Does so that give you enough to go on for your small groups? Of course, anything related to the course or the readings that seem useful, impactful, what you've been learning in your own study and meditation and reflection would be really helpful. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity.